Hey, hey, how's everybody doing? Hoping you're having a fantastic day. So I've been able to squeeze in another video on the development of doctrine. Uh, for those who have reached out, uh, been messaging me, congratulating me even, uh, no, my, my next child is not here yet. Uh, the wife and I are patiently waiting, uh, but not yet. So I will be disappearing soon, but I am still kind of here. Uh, we're preparing, obviously, it takes a lot of time to prepare stuff for the arrival of a new child. But I am still technically here, but eventually I will be disappearing for about two weeks. But before we get in on this episode, uh, just one thing that I've been working on while I was uh, in a little bit of a hiatus when it comes to this. But this new work brief introduction to the development of doctrine according to the mind of St. Thomas Aquinas by Father Thomas Gilby. Uh, I, have, I found this in the appendix to a translation of the Summa uh, by Father Thomas Gilby, or I think he was the editor. I don't think he was the translator. But definitely consider picking up a copy of this work. It's really good, really, really good. Quotes a lot of places within St. Thomas. Uh, uses a little bit of a simpler language. So if that interests you, it's only 67 pages. Uh, it's actually, that's the, the Kindle version. Let's see what the, the print is. 65 pages in the print. Uh, so definitely consider uh, picking up a copy. Pick up a copy for a friend. Uh, if you have a friend that particularly struggles uh, with this issue, I know uh, both in Protestant slash Orthodox circles and then also <clears throat> in some traditionalist Catholic circles, there is some struggle when it comes to accepting the idea of the development of doctrine. So this is definitely a good pick for you to uh, get off of Amazon. And uh, if you also would, uh, definitely give it a rating, give it a review, give it five stars uh, so we can get this to more people. This works kind of like the YouTube algorithm. There's an Amazon algorithm where if you give it a good review, a lot more people see it, and if a lot more people see it, a lot more people buy it. And uh, that makes me happy because a lot more people are learning about something which is dear to my heart. So uh, that's about all. One more thing. Um, actually, I'll, I'll get into this once I start. So today uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the physico-connexive virtual and why that is not the type of virtual that we do in theology. If you remember from our grand uh, historical introduction to the various opinions. We remember Suarez kind of messed up things a little bit. Some Antichenses went in the wrong direction. John of St. Thomas stood strong. Uh, Lugo, he uh, tried to reconcile Suarez's theory, but didn't. Um, and then unfortunately, uh, our beloved St. John Henry Newman followed a bit in the tracks of Suarez. But all that beside, we are going to be showing why the physico-connexive virtual cannot be the type of virtuality uh, that we uh, use when it comes to theology. So this is going to involve um, something that I brought up earlier. Uh, let me see. I'm going to share my screen uh, to the video. To give you guys a quick refresher. So if you guys remember, uh, this was the fifth episode. This was 1.4, Reasoning from Essence to Properties. We outlined six types of reasoning and then gave a brief comment on the types of reasoning that we use when it comes to 
theology. So these are divided based on uh, the radical risibility versus actual risibility, and then mere essence, integral essence, and perfect essence. And we showed that uh, the fourth type, that is, John has mere essence of man, therefore John has actual risibility, that that uh, doesn't work out when it comes to the metaphysical sciences. But when it comes to the other five, they do. Uh, they do work out. We can argue John is a mere essence of a man, therefore John has radical risibility, or the, the root of risibility, or the aptitude of risibility. Uh, we can also argue John has integral essence of man, therefore John has radical risibility, or John has perfect essence of man, therefore John has radical risibility. And further, we can argue that John has the integral essence of man, therefore John has actual risibility, or John has the perfect essence of man, therefore John has actual risibility. We can argue these things. And then further, there's actually a, a third level that we can talk about. Um, we can talk about certain moral perfections. So we can talk about John having actual justice. John having the, the perfective virtue of justice. Uh, we can't argue from the mere essence of man, because there's plenty with the mere essence of man that aren't just. We can't all, uh, argue from the integral essence of man. There's plenty with all of the integrity of a human nature, following the physical laws um, of, of normal um, life that aren't just. But if we argue from the perfect essence of man, that is with all of the moral perfections, physical perfections and metaphysical perfections of a man, we can argue that John is just. So there's kind of this third layer uh, we can bring up. Uh, this isn't as uh, useful when it comes to theology, but we'll see in the case of, for example, Christ or Our Lady, that arguing from the moral perfections or, or something uh, like certain teachings when it comes to grace, um, th this isn't going to be something that we're able to actually use in theology in some limited cases. So I didn't bring it up uh, then, but I am going to be bringing it up now, uh, and especially when we look at the example of Christ. So let's get back to this good outline. So with some uh, preliminaries, the physical connexive, that is going to be the fourth type. Uh, the fourth type, that's the physical connexive, because we need some sort of, uh, how do I say it, some sort of data from the physical sciences in order to verify uh, the fact that, let's say, John has actual risibility, because we need to verify uh, something about his essence. So uh, to begin, we need to note three things. So first, we are not looking at the radical, but actual properties that are really distinct from the essence of the thing. So not actual risibility, we're looking at, I mean, we're not looking at radical risibility or the aptitude to risibility, we're looking at actual risibility, those that are really distinct from the mere essence. Second, we are starting at the simple essence without a consideration of connatural or preternatural perfections. So we're not looking at the uh, integral perfections that, that go into man. We're not looking at the moral perfections that go into man in a, in a sort of perfect state. We're only looking at the simple perfect, uh, simple essence. And then third, we are ending in an absolute rather than a conditioned conclusion. So if somebody were to go about this reasoning, we would say that John has a simple essence. Uh, therefore, John absolutely has the actual property, property of risibility. Not if John happens to have these perfections, he would have it. No, no, no. This is a this is an absolute conclusion when it comes to the physico-connexive virtuality. 
So in order to prove that the physico-connexive uh, doesn't really work when it comes to theology, uh, we're going to begin with the axiom that a false consequent cannot follow from a true antecedent. So if you guys remember from logic, if you don't remember from logic, uh, you can get uh, a wonderful course in logic on my website, christianbwagner.com. Check that out. But the antecedent is basically the, prop the premises that we go into an argument with. So Socrates is a man. Uh, Soc uh, men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Men are mortal. That's the antecedent. So if we have a true antecedent, the antecedent is both formally and materially true then the conclusion that's going to follow from this antecedent is going to be true. And that's all we mean by the consequent. So a false consequent cannot follow from a true antecedent. So if we see that the, that the consequent is false, then we know that the antecedent is also false. And therefore, there's some problems in either the form or the matter of our, uh, of our antecedent. And therefore, we're going to know that there's, uh, we're, we're going to be able to, we're going to have to find out uh, the issues with it. So uh, in order to uh, find out whether this can be a uh, true uh, form of argumentation, let's take some examples of reasoning that do involve physico-connexive virtuals. So uh, in each of these cases that I'm going to bring up, uh, these cases are directly from Father Sola. I'm going to be quoting a lot from Father Sola uh, here, and I'm not always going to explicitly state it, so just be aware. So let's take some examples of physico-connexive virtuals. Uh, the minor and all of these arguments are going to be physically necessary, and the majors are just going to work off of the simple metaphysical essence. And let's see if these conclusions are all true. So the first uh, argument, the body of Christ in the Eucharist is a true body, but every body actually occupies space. Therefore, the body of Christ in the Eucharist actually occupies space. So is the consequent true? No, the consequent is not true. It's, a, it's of faith. Um, actually, I think this, yes, this is actually of faith, that the body of Christ in the Eucharist does not actually occupy space. The second argument, the Eucharistic species are true accidents, but every accident actually inheres in the subject. Therefore, the Eucharistic species actually inheres in their subject. Do the accidents of the Eucharist actually inhere in their subject? No. They don't actually inhere. They only radically or aptitudinally uh, inhere. Third, uh, the, these are going to these might be a little bit more simple for you, a uh, little bit uh, easier for you. So third, the fires of the furnace of Babylon was true fire applied in the proper and due conditions, but any true fire properly and duly applied actually burns. Therefore, the fire of the furnace of Babylon actually burned. Did the fire of the furnace of Babylon actually burn? the three young children? No, they didn't. Fourth, the fire of hell or of purgatory is a true fire, but no bodily thing is capable of torturing or imprisoning a spirit. Therefore, the fire of hell or of purgatory neither tortures nor imprisons spirits. Is this, is this a true conclusion? No, it isn't a true conclusion because the fires of hell and purgatory actually do uh, torture and imprison spirits. Fifth, Elijah was a true man, but all true men actually die. Therefore, Elijah actually died. Did Elijah die? No, Elijah did not die. Sixth, Jesus Christ is true man, but every true man is both a human person and conceived of a human male. Therefore, Jesus Christ is a human person and was conceived of a human male. Was Jesus Christ a human person? That is, did he have a human hypostasis? No, he didn't. 
Uh, was uh, Jesus conceived of a human male? No, Jesus Christ was not conceived of a human male. Uh, he did not have a human father. Seventh, the Blessed Virgin is a descendant of Adam and was conceived of a man, but in these conditions, original sin is actually contracted. Therefore, the Blessed Virgin actually contracted original sin. Did the Blessed Virgin actually contract original sin? No, she did not. Eighth, Jesus Christ and his Blessed Mother truly and really died, but no dead human rises again or comes back to life. Therefore, neither Jesus Christ nor the Blessed Virgin has risen or come back to life. Is this true? No, it's not true. Both of them have actually come back to life. So when it comes to all of these arguments in the major premise, we uh, I'll, I'll use the example, the, the simplest example. Elijah was a true man, but all true men actually die. Therefore, Elijah actually died. Elijah is a true man. That is merely designating the essence of Elijah. The simple essence without all the connatural perfections or, or anything like that or without all of the uh, physical laws that may be present in this world uh, we are merely designating elijah's essence and then the minor premise but all true men actually die is it metaphysically necessary that all true men actually die does it involve a metaphysical contradiction that all men uh actually die no that's not a physical law i mean that's not a metaphysical law that's a physical law it's a physical law of this world that all men actually die, but it does not provide a contradiction that this doesn't happen to uh, metaphysical laws, rather only to physical laws, only to the ordinary way in which this world works with all of the laws that God has put uh, in it. These laws can be in a certain way suspended. So we see that there is uh, actually a really big issue uh, when it comes to using uh, physical laws or uh, we'll see in a further case, moral laws, uh, as minor premises in these arguments when we only have uh, metaphysical uh, major premises. So in all of these uh, arguments, the issue is that uh, there are four terms. So the uh, in, in a normal argument, Socrates is a man, men are mortal, therefore Socrates is mortal. We have, we have three terms, Socrates, man, and mortal. But in all of these arguments, we have the fallacy of equivocation because in the major premise, Elijah was a true man, the middle term, true man, uh, in the major premise, and then the term true man in the minor premise, they're being used in two different senses. In the major premise, uh, it merely, it's designating merely the essence of man. In the minor premise, it's designating uh, man uh, under the physical laws of this uh, world. So when you use these uh, when when you use these term uh, these propositions of physical necessity in a theological argument, what you're going to run into is equivocation. So we can't use these. So, um, but on the other hand, let's go to the physical sciences. So let's say uh, we have a biologist who is studying the life of Elijah. I don't, I don't know why a biologist would be studying the life of Elijah, but let's just pretend. So this biologist, when the biologist studies life, or uh, let's say it's an uh, anthropologist. I, I don't know whether an anthropologist, uh, let's just say a doctor, a doctor. When doctors study life or study health or, or study anything of that sort, 
They are going off of things in their connatural state. So things under the physical laws of this world. They aren't acting as the metaphysician looking at the essences of things, but are only looking at the connatural perfections. So they don't abstract essences. So uh, if this doctor were to look at Elijah, the doctor would say, oh, well, Elijah is going to die. That's what the doctor would get it, get from it. Is the doctor wrong? Well, the doctor's wrong in that Elijah didn't die. But the doctor is right in making the judgment that based on the physical laws of men, that Elijah would die. So this is the difference between the metaphysician or the theologian and the uh, those broadly speaking that engage in physics or uh, natural sciences is that we look at the essences of things where the uh, physicist, that is those who engage in natural sciences, they look at all of the physical laws of this world. So uh, when it comes to us, we are only able to deduce the aptitudinal or radical property from the essence of the thing in whatever state. So when we look at Elijah, uh, since we're looking at the essences of things, we can say that Elijah has the aptitude to die. That's perfectly, perfectly fine. We can say that. But we can't make the judgment that Elijah actually died. And uh, God ends up working a miracle above the physical laws of the world. Uh, so um, uh, we see that the physical laws actually didn't uh, come to pass. Second, we were able to deduce actual properties from the essences of things in their connatural state. So if it's revealed to us, uh, let's say, that something is in its connatural state, we are actually able to uh, use all of the uh, physical laws and are able to apply to it. So let's say we're, it's revealed to us that Daniel is a man in the uh, integral or connatural state. We're able to make the judgment that Daniel does not only have the aptitude to die or the radical property of uh, going to die-ness, but also that he will actually die or he actually did die. Um, and this also comes to pass when it comes to uh, things that are morally necessary. So those that follow the moral laws. So, uh, for example, uh, this is something we're going to bring up later. But the argument that Mary is a mother, uh, mothers love their sons, therefore Mary loves her sons. Now, if we have Mary as a mother, just according to the essence of motherhood, or according to the physical laws of motherhood, we're not going to be able to deduce that Mary uh, loved her son. But since it has been revealed to us that Mary has the moral perfections of motherhood, then we are going to be able to conclude that Mary loved her son. But notice we need to keep uh, that which is metaphysically necessary, that is according to the essence, that which is physically necessary, that is according to the physical laws, and that which is morally necessary, that is that is accord uh, that which is according to the moral laws. We need to keep these three distinguished always, because we are not able to deduce actual properties or moral properties from the mere essence of a thing. As we saw in those eight examples, all of those eight examples followed uh, physical laws, followed moral laws, but they did not strictly deduce from the essence of the thing, which is those things that are absolutely or metaphysically uh, necessary.
So uh, in this, we're actually able to draw some conclusions about the nature of the minor premise. And if you don't remember minor premise, that's the second premise uh, in an argument. Because due to the feebleness of our intellects, this isn't the case with God or angels, obviously, we do not see all that is contained in the premise. Thus, we need the help of what's called the minor premise in order to reach conclusions. So the minor premise becomes a tool for us in order to find out other things. So we come to the, to the premise that Socrates is a man. We don't see all of the various properties of man and Socrates. Uh, thus, we need to uh, investigate a little bit about what it means to be a man. And we come to the conclusion that because uh, Socrates is a composite of body and soul, that Socrates is corruptible and therefore mo uh, mortal. And from this, we're able to conclude that uh, because men are mortal, that Socrates is mortal. All of these uh, angels can just peer into um, something and know all of the properties of that thing. But we need a little bit of help uh, from minor premises. So when it comes to uh, dealing with revelation, that is those premises that are revealed to us, uh, we need to make sure the minor premise of revelation is something which is proportioned uh, to the major premise of revelation. We need to make sure they're in the same genus. So if we're talking about the mere essence, we need to make sure that we're just uh, using metaphysical properties. If we're talking about the physical essence. We need to make sure we're just talking about what is physically necessary. If we're talking about uh, something in the state of moral perfection, then we are uh, just using that which is morally uh, necessary. So uh, if we're going to, and I wanted to bring up some examples. This is the example of the, the mother. Uh, thank you for continuing the series. How many more videos will you do? Ooh, uh, um, a lot. Uh, maybe, gosh, somewhere between 15, 20, uh, somewhere in that range. So I'm, I'm maybe like a third of the way done. There's still a lot more stuff to cover uh, because we haven't even gotten into uh, the relationship between the church and drawing theological conclusions and imposing them as a faith. Uh, that's going to be a big, big uh, controversy that we're going to get into. So I wanted to bring up some uh, examples of this, of how we can go about it. So um, it's it's one thing uh, to reveal that uh, I'll use the example of Mary and our Lord, uh, because this is going to be kind of obvious, and this is actually uh, works really well. So it's one thing to reveal that Mary is essentially the mother of Jesus. And it's a different thing to reveal that she was not only a mother essentially, but also a mother uh, in keeping with all of the physical laws of motherhood. And it's another thing to reveal that she was a good mother that is uh, in, in line with all of the moral uh, laws and instincts of motherhood. So to reveal the meeting of to determine the meaning of the revealed datum belongs to the church to deduce consequences as a function of theology. So in accordance with the meaning or teaching of the church, it has re been revealed that Mary is only merely essentially the mother of Christ. Then theologically, we can in infer that Mary possessed all the essential attributes or properties of motherhood. And this is uh, basically the consubstantiality of nature. That is the essence of motherhood, to be consubstantial of nature and to communicate that nature. So, but it cannot be inferred with theological necessity 
all of the natural requisites or attributes. So uh, some of these uh, physical laws of motherhood are going to be, uh, for example, marital intercourse, the loss of virginity, etc. So we can see this very clearly when it comes to uh, the case of our Lord and our Lady. Our Lady, perpetual virgin, uh, did not follow all of the physical laws of motherhood. So the theologian uh, cannot conclude that Mary uh, was had all of the physical uh, attributes of motherhood in keeping with all of the laws of how God has decided that motherhood occurs. We can only infer the what has been revealed, that is, her essential motherhood. That is, that she has consubstantiality in accordance with her nature with the Son. So, uh, Uh, when it when it comes to, on the other hand, if it was revealed that Mary was not only the true mother, or essentially the mother of Christ, but that she was a mother in the connatural or ordinary way as other women, then we can be theologically certain of any conclusion that is physically connected with motherhood. But we know, uh, again, this is not the truth because this hasn't been revealed to us, and we actually know something contrary to this. But at this point, we're still uncertain about all of the moral laws of motherhood. So uh, the moral laws such as uh, loving uh, her child. But it has been revealed to us, actually, that it, she is in the uh, perfect state of motherhood when it comes to these laws. So we do know, uh, for example, uh, it could be actually defined as a dogma of the church that Mary loved her son. I, I, don't, I don't know about uh, the dogma, dogmas of the church when it comes to the moral status of Our Lady, except that uh, she was free uh, from original sin. But we can actually deduce with theological certainty that Mary loved Jesus, because we know uh, that Mary was in a state of perfection uh, when it comes to uh, moral laws. So when it comes to, uh, just, just after that example, uh, we can also say the same thing of the relationship between causes and effects. So if you remember, the two uh, ways in which we can reason metaphysically is between essence and properties, that is between, uh, for example, the essence of man and the essence of, uh, and having the property of visibility. We can also uh, argue from the relationship of causes and effects. So first we can look at the metaphysical cause so from the metaphysical cause, we can deduce, you guessed it, the metaphysical effect. So from eternity, we can deduce immutability. And this is why um, if we only happen to be revealed the eternity of God, and not his immutability, well, the immutability of God, not his eternity, we could uh, deduce the eternity. So the eternity of God technically doesn't need to be something revealed. Really, only the immutability needs to be revealed. And from this, we can uh, deduce God's eternity because it, they're related as metaphysical cause, metaphysical effect. Second, uh, if we look at the physical cause, we can deduce the physical effect if the essence is in the connatural state. So, um, for example, we can make this argument. Christ is a man in the connatural state. In relation to his powers, therefore Christ actually has the powers of knowing and loving. 
this is something that has been revealed to us. So we can actually uh, define as a dogma that Christ has the powers of knowing and loving if it wasn't something that was revealed. Third, the moral cause can be used to deduce the moral effect if the essence is in the morally perfect state. So, for example, uh, Christ had the moral virtues perfectly, uh, yet we cannot deduce the physical or moral effects from the mere essence. So we only deduce the moral perfections of Christ from uh, the fact that we know that he has, uh, is in a morally perfect state. So if it wasn't revealed that Christ uh, was in a morally perfect state, we would not be able to deduce the moral perfections uh, of Christ. If it was, let's say, just revealed that Christ uh, merely had the essence of man, we would not be able to deduce that Christ uh, really had all of the moral perfections. But it has been revealed to us, so we can deduce this. Um, and uh, another example of this, uh, let's say, uh, if we have the example of a heavy body, if it has been uh, merely revealed to us that something has the essence of a heavy body, we cannot deduce that it would sink in water. Uh, and this is uh, the case in, in sacred scripture. There are examples of heavy bodies not sinking because uh, this is something that is merely true in the connatural state uh, in accordance with the physical laws. But if it's not revealed to us that something is in accordance with the physical laws, you cannot know it because, again, miracles can occur and the physical laws can be overturned, but the metaphysical laws cannot be overturned. That's something very important to realize. So finally, uh, the question comes up whether the church can define infallibly such conclusions that are virtually contained in the premises, whether metaphysical, physical, or moral. So um, since it is impossible to safeguard the fact that, uh, let's say, Christ is essentially a man, if one denies that he is aptitudinally or radically risible, or that uh, Christ is a man in the connatural state, if one denies that he is mortal, or that Christ is essentially a man in the perfect state, if he does not have the virtues, the church must have the authority to speak infallibly on these issues if they are revealed. So we can't safeguard uh, the property if we don't safeguard, we can't safeguard the essence if we don't safeguard the property. We can't safeguard the cause if we can't safeguard the effect. So the church can speak on all of these issues and define it if the church wishes. It's four so the best example uh, of this, at least that uh, I think, and this provides the, the most fruitful examples, is the example of the incarnation. So when it comes to the incarnation, we see that the church has defined that Christ had an actual will, an actual mind, etc. The reason for this is that, uh, well, the reason that this is an object of infallibility is because God has revealed that Christ was a man in a perfect state. So he revealed uh, beyond the fact that he had a mere essence. Because let's say uh, God only revealed that Christ had the mere essence of man. We would not be able to deduce that Christ had the moral virtues because this isn't something that we can deduce from the mere essence, as we see in plenty of counterexamples where there are plenty of people who have the mere essence of man, but they don't have all of the moral virtues. Same goes for um, following some of the physical laws. Obviously, uh, due to miracles, Christ does not follow other physical laws, but he does follow some physical laws. And um, 
we can look at the example of St. Thomas Aquinas, who actually, uh, he, he carefully, uh, this is actually really cool to see, because this is in line with what Father Sola is saying here. But if we look at the Summa Theologica, and we look at the treatise on the Incarnation, we can see that St. Thomas clearly distinguishes between three revealed pr uh, principles. First, that Christ is essentially man. Second, that Christ is uh, a perfect man, which is going to be following um, from all of the connatural perfections. And third, that Christ is an utterly perfect man. And utterly perfect uh, is talking about all of the moral perfections. So uh, when it comes to the, the first example, uh, that is... Uh, whether, uh, whether the Son of God should have assumed a true body, St. Thomas is going to answer uh, in accordance with the principle. So he says, I answer that it must be said that three reasons can be given for this. That is that Christ assumed a true body. The first of which is taken from the essence of human nature, to which it belongs to have a true body. Assuming, therefore, from the foregoing that it behooved the Son of God to assume a human nature, it follows that he assumed a true body. How do we know this? Well, men are rational animals. In our animality, we it is essential to us that Christ uh, we, that we have bodies, because animality only uh, only occurs when we have a body. So, uh, from the revealed premise that Christ is essentially man, uh, we can deduce that Christ had a true body. Second. When St. Thomas uh, wishes to deduce uh, Christ's connatural perfection, uh, properties, that is not only um, questions that concern the essence of man. So an example of this is going to be the powers of the intellect, powers of the will, the concupiscible and irascible appetites. He does not uh, resort to the principle that Christ is truly or essentially man, because uh, these things don't follow strictly from the fact that Christ is truly or essentially man, or that any man is truly or essentially man, because these are connatural perfections, but to the premise that Christ is a whole or a perfect man. And uh, he treats this when it comes to his question on dithelitism, that is, whether Christ had two wills. So he says, I answer that it must be said that it is manifest that the Son of God assumed a perfect human nature, notice perfect human nature, as has been shown previously. Now the will belongs to the perfection, notice, to the perfection, not the essence, the perfection of human nature, of which it is a natural power, as is the intellect. And this is clear from what has been said in the first part. Therefore, it must be said that the Son of God assumed a human will in the human nature. Now third, uh, when St. Thomas wishes to deduce the acquirable perfections of human nature, so that is like the, the moral perfections, or we may even uh, talk about the, the perfections of science, so that is the intellectual perfections. He does not uh, resort to the principle that Christ is a true man or that Christ is a perfect man, that is Christ is all the connatural perfections, but that Christ is an utterly perfect man, that is that Christ has the moral perfections. So uh, on the question of whether Christ had some knowledge other than the divine knowledge, he answers that uh, it must be said that it behooved Christ to possess created knowledge for three reasons. The first is for the sake of the perfection of the soul, for the soul considering itself as impotency to know the intelligibles. But what is impotency is imperfect unless it be reduced to act. Thus it behooved that the soul of Christ should be perfect by some knowledge. 
so from this, uh, it follows the um, the that that sort of third way in which the essence can exist, not only with the physical perfections, but with all of the moral perfections. So I hope this made sense to everybody. Uh, I I might see you uh, soon. Who knows? Uh, if the baby takes a lot longer, I might be able to squeeze in another video, but unlikely. So I will see you guys eventually. God bless.